0: I'm Brandon Bartnick, and this is the Future of Mobility Podcast. Safe, sustainable, and equitable mobility solutions. That's what this is all about. With the climate situation as it is right now, plus many other factors, it's never been more important for us to continue to improve the sustainability of the way that we're moving goods and people. At the same time, we need to improve safety for drivers and pedestrians, and we need to get these solutions in the hands of the people who need them, need them most. So that's what I cover, primarily interviews I'm talking to the people who are developing and implementing, covering these technology solutions. Also, my day job, this podcast is brought to you by FEV. FEV is your complete vehicle engineering partner for sustainable energy and mobility solutions. We're the engineering technology partner behind a lot of what you see on the road and elsewhere. Shoot me a note if you want to learn more. Check out FEV.com. Check us out on LinkedIn. Today's guest is Shiva Bardwaj. Shiva is founder and CEO at Pitstop, who is disrupting the automotive industry by unlocking vehicle data to create a more efficient, safer, and cleaner future. So, vehicle data, a topic that's seemingly uh, come up uh, a ton over the last few months on this podcast, and it's a uh, it's hot topic. Glad we were able to dive into detail here. So, the vehicles driving around the road increasingly complex they're collecting a ton of data they have sensors all over the place they have perception power and we're utilizing this data for more and more good uses right so we're using it for propulsion system planning it we're using it for assisted and automated driving uh, connectivity a, a couple other things but we're just scratching the surface and Pitstop is working on some of the things to help take it to the next level help us take advantage of this data and use it and use it in ways, like they say, to make things more efficient, safer, and, and cleaner as we're moving around. So we talk in detail about a few specific things. So for example, predictive maintenance, seemingly a simple topic, but far from simple, trying to figure out, okay, data you're collecting, you're driving around, you have different sensors, you, you have this information you're getting, how can you use this to determine which components are likely to fail on which, at which frequency so that Rather than waiting as a fleet operator until you have a broken down vehicle, you can address, analyze, fix it beforehand, improve your uptime, decrease your downtime, all of these positive things. And we talked in in a good amount of detail here. So we talked about collecting the data, the ways in which Pit Stop is helping to analyze the data. So figuring out, okay, you have a bunch of data coming. How do you figure out what's the useful stuff? What's What's the good data? What's the stuff that you should get? You should be thrown out and not where you concern yourself with we talked about how they're using ai and machine learning to to make this happen and even talked about kind of some of the decision making some of the application some of the other applications automotive some of the applications elsewhere so really really fun discussion there we also were able to spend some time talking about Shiva's experience thus far as an entrepreneur i enjoyed kind of picking his brain how he's uh Few things he's learned along, along the way, kind of exchanging notes as uh, on our career journey so far, which 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 I really enjoyed. So, yeah, I guess with, without further enjoy, p- without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Shiva Bardwaj.
1: Today, I'm joined by Shiva Bardwaj. Shiva, thanks for coming on.
2: Thanks for having me, Brandon. Uh, happy to be here.
1: Yeah, yeah. likewise I am glad you, glad you're joining. I think this will be a, a fun discussion talking about some of the the data science and all the predictive analytics stuff that you guys are doing and uh, everything that the fun stuff PitStop's is working on. So maybe maybe to start us off, could you uh, just at, at a high level describe kind of what is PitStop? How, how has the company started and, and what are you working on?
2: Yeah, for sure. So PitStop is a powerful AI for the future of mobility. And I know that's a large statement, but it's really about extracting as much insights. And, and what we call that is decision intelligence from the data that vehicles generate, that companies in the supply chain, whether it's a dealer, a fleet, supplier, OEM, all these data sets that are being generated, whether it's from the machine or from people, being able to take those data sets, run advanced prediction models at scale across millions of vehicles and come out with insights that predicts when things are gonna break down, um, where you should stock inventory because of demand supply issues. So just really getting ahead of insights based on predictability. That's really where we come in with our platform.
1: Cool, yeah, and I, I think uh, a lot, a lot of questions, a lot of places I'm going to want to go. Um, but sure. maybe, maybe let's let's start with kind of the even the, the further background. So, so how kind of what's you, what's your background and how did you come about starting PitStop and deciding that this was the company that you wanted to run?
2: Yeah, sure. So <clears throat> actually, growing up, I my father's owned um, some dealers, uh, dealerships. I spent a lot of time actually in the back with the technicians working on vehicles. As a kind of individual growing up in the 2000s, I was really the electronic guy, the computer guy. So, a lot more on diagnostics and reprogramming ECUs and looking at fuel maps. And so, I spent time becoming an engineer and then worked in the Bay Area for a company called NVIDIA. It's a big graphics card manufacturer. And uh, while I was there, I was working on a chipset called Tegra, which was launched in Tesla. Uh, to power the infotainment unit. And I realized data flowed back from that vehicle to us as a supplier in in the case of NVIDIA. And every six months we had a new chip ready to go. Um, This chip was not just used by Tesla, it was used by other products like tablets and Chromebooks. Um, But the point is that when data flows back from the product, the end product that consumers use to the supplier, it allows you to build so quickly and iterate upon your issues and failures and at such a fast rate. And I realized there's a gap in the entire auto ecosystem to take advantage of these data sets so that you can build better products, better quality, better insights, make better decisions ultimately. And that's a win, win, win for everybody. Um, and it's really a, a task of data science and data wrangling and uh, getting as much data as possible.
1: Yeah. No, I think this is such an interesting space. And, and I, I'd uh, love to get your thoughts, but it, at least personally, I think I feel like we're still kind of in the early innings here of making sense of all the data that these vehicles are collecting. So, right, v- vehicles of all type have offen- essentially become a smartphone on wheels, is the the phrase that gets thrown around, which I don't think is that far off. With all of the different types of sensors and modules you have on the vehicle that's collecting data, and most of it isn't being used very, uh, very effectively. If if we're being honest, right. Um, and there's there's so many different use cases for how this could potentially benefit the the OEMs, the suppliers, the fleet managers. Uh, I don't nearby businesses who are trying to learn about traffic patterns and the the way like there's almost end, endless things that we could come up with for how all of this data could be, could be utilized. And I think maybe the challenges are figuring out what what are the right use cases, and then also how do you wade through all this data collectively and and make sense of it. So with with that being said, and maybe you agree, maybe maybe you don't appreciate your thought, but how how have you gone about kind of deciding that deciding kind of where the sweet spot is for you, and what what are kind of the use cases that you want to focus on um, as a company?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. I think um, just just back to your first point about where we're at in the industry. I think it's early, and it's kind of like we're in nineteen ninety eight, right before two thousand, where there's an internet bubble, and then. You know, Then Facebook, Google, all these companies started growing, Amazon after that. So there's this layer that's being built right now around connected vehicles, which is how do we stream good data from the vehicle to the cloud in a cost-effective manner? How do we then store that data in the cloud so that applications can run on top? And so I think some of the infrastructure is being put in place. And it's after that, that the apps will start to grow. And I don't think the apps here are similar to a Facebook or Google by any means. It's a lot more AI products and AI apps, such as based on the data coming from your vehicle and the weather, I can now better tell you how to route your vehicle or based on um, vehicle data from your vehicle and all the others of similar type in this region. I know that your battery is super weak and you gotta go change it on your EV because it's degraded faster than the norm. And, And so that level of granularity is what's possible, um, and now so the question then is like, what do you focus on that delivers value and you can build a business around? And that's a very tricky question because in the space we're in, we come from manufacturing focused first, which is different. It's all about drive as much volume around component development, uh, and and then have you have tight margins, but volume kind of makes up for uh, the, the huge costs upfront costs. And when you build software and data products, you're actually not thinking about costs at all, to be honest, because what you're trying to figure out is how do you scale this platform or product such that you get enough usage where then um, the costs kind of average out across many customers and your margins are high, like 80, 90 percent when you have these kind of solutions. So the mindset is actually a world of a difference. And I think in that thinking through that, it's where. Is there a cross-section between that mindset and the type of use case that we can deliver. What we've stumbled upon and and think is is the killer use cases to start is working with fleet organizations to drive as much uptime as possible by predicting when components are going to fail, understanding why they have downtime today, how to group predicted um, maintenance items with known maintenance items so that you're not wasting time. So that use case is like a (laughs) no-brainer. Um, and, and helps fleets be more efficient in this world of you know, digital, the digital economy and e-commerce, that becomes forefront and front and center. And then the second use case is how do we help OEMs and suppliers build smarter components? So what smart algorithms need to be accompanied with the sensors you deploy in the vehicle um, that work in the cloud and can give aggregated insights? But then also from any data sets that are captured today, what can be extracted from it without changing um, much of the vehicle architecture? Those are the types of problem sets that we spend a lot of energy on and think are killer use cases that are driving a lot of value.
1: Yeah, no, let's dig into to both of those. So it's maybe the first one, fleets. Uh, can, can you give an example? Um, what type of fleets are we talking about here?
2: Yeah, so we've been working a a lot with the middle mile, long haul logistics fleet, as well as last mile, to be honest. So anything from like pickup trucks that are used for utilities or uh, vans like the sprinter vans that uh, Amazon might use all the way up to long haul heavy duty trucks that are going across the country delivering goods. Those are the types of vehicles we work with. Typically, it's uh, vehicles or fleets of 100 vehicles or more in size. And what we're doing for them is we're able to say, hey, in real time, on any given day, here's three vehicles that have critical issues related to battery, brake, tire, powertrain, so the core systems on the vehicle. And if you don't address it, there's high likelihood that they'll you'll experience downtime, such as a vehicle breakdown, which may cost $5,000. And so the ROI of using our solution ends up being about 10x, so 1,025% ROI, in terms of the cost of our solution to the value that we give back to these fleets.
1: And maybe it'd be interesting to understand kind of how how this works. So you mentioned a a situation like this, where you're predicting, Hey, these components like likely to fail. Let's, let's figure this out. Let's put it as part of the the next level of next round of routine maintenance. What type of data are you gathering? That's giving you this, these insights and how are you making sense of it in a, in a intelligent way and communicating back, to the fleet uh, owners.
2: Yeah, so a number, like most commercial fleets out there actually have telematics equipped in some form or fashion, whether it's OEM direct or or from an aftermarket player. So we've mm-hmm. integrated with the biggest players out there um, in order to capture that data, Geotab, Samsara, Verizon for, as examples. Uh, and so we plug in and we pull things like battery voltages, fuel trims, uh, tire pressure, temperature of the engine. There's about, there's 300 sensors, Uh, on average, that gets pulled and at varying frequencies. And so the sample rates are actually quite slow when you talk about production telematics. It's not uh, less than a second for sure. We're talking about 10 second range. So you got to do a lot of data reconstruction um, and you got to throw out a lot of data. So part of the process is data quality, verification, uh, analysis prior to feeding it through a bunch of prediction models. But once you get it to the prediction models, you're able to start seeing trends and patterns. Sometimes it's by comparing the brake usage on a particular asset to all other assets in its, in, in its cohort, which then allows you to say, okay, it's pretty clear that you're going to need brakes. We also know you have a preventative maintenance uh, scheduled for next week uh, to do an oil change, things like that. Let's make sure that brakes get inspected. And those are ways you can layer predictive maintenance into the existing workflow. Uh, and create, mitigate all false positives and create um, more uptime for the customer.
1: And To what degree are you guys utilizing AI machine learning uh, methodologies for trying to find these trends and determine what what they're going to correlate to?
2: Yeah, yeah. So the, the key here is we take this time series data input, things like let's say battery voltage over time, or tire pressure over time. And then we use things like service records. So what wh- when it went in for service, what was actually replaced and when? Mm-hmm. And these two data sets are both very ugly. One is like very low resolution uh, vehicle data. The other is um, sometimes chicken scratch written by mechanics in some electronic format. So you have to do a lot of data quality pre-processing And then you you kind of curate it down to, okay, here's a set of data that I can train models on, validate models on, and then you start running and building these machine learning models um, and then testing them out and proving them out. And then you start launching with more and more customers, and then you start getting maturity across the globe. And so we've been able to go through that end-to-end cycle with a dozen or so prediction models with customers all over the world.
0: Yeah, this is
1: really interesting stuff. And maybe this, uh, this data quality scrubbing is interesting too, which maybe just a quick uh, anecdote. So, so like my, my, my previous role before FEV, I was with Boeing and my, I had a problem of uh, I was working on wallpapers in, inside inside your plane and there was a defect that we had. And theoretically, we had the data flow in place for us to be able to collect good information, try to root cause this, and figure out where the problem is coming from. But the data set was so unreliable because we had different mechanics who were technicians who were expected to put in information and it was never consistent. If someone said X was happening, if they didn't really know what they were looking for, you couldn't actually trust that it was. So ultimately, the solution was I ended up walking three times a week. I was walking personally every single plane and I was looking myself because I'm like, yeah, this is the only data set that we can trust is me, my own eyes looking at this, which yeah well, it wasn't necessarily the most practical way, but I, I think that was the solution we came up with for data scrubbing. Um, but I, I guess for for what you guys are working on, can you can you explain kind of how this process looks for trying to evaluate data and make sense of what what data can we trust and what we can't?
2: Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. Like in your example, if I was to like use that and extrapolate, <clears throat> it would be imagine now, that issue happened for every airplane in the world. I know airplane volumes are much smaller than vehicles. So the big data set is a little bit different. Um, so, So the thing here is if you have like millions of those incidents or cases, and you know that there's a large percentage that will have error, and you try to qualify and log for those error cases and you filter out, you will eventually get down to a sample set that is very reliable and, and it's about the approach and technique to that sample set. And you don't just depend on one sample set. You, you run like a thousand different uh, cleaning methods and you try a thousand different variations and then you try to see what is the prediction accuracy really different if I train on this variation versus that variation. And when, when the variance is not so significant, you know, like, okay, this is probably a general set that will work for, for this problem that we were trying to estimate or predict for uh, so I think that's one way. The second way is there's experts out there. There's companies that build these components directly. They know the mathematical models of how to build these components and how they work. And I think you can layer in physics with machine learning. Um, but there's a there's a way to do this. And it's kind of related to the fact that each physical component probably has uh, equations full of um or pages full of a, an equation that defines its functionality, like a tire and tire wear. But if you simplify it into like core variables and then you understand what variables can you actually feed in real time. Um, and then for the variables that are missing, you, you try to simulate it or you try to compensate with assumptions or insights. You generally get to 90% prediction accuracies uh, as long as you're comparing it on a big enough data set. And that's the kind of stuff, like there's ways to hack getting to good accuracy, good enough for the use cases that you're delivering for. And I think that's the way you have to think about building these products, not from the pure automotive perspective, which is, hey, this component is so complicated, which is true, it is. And so unless we have a sensor for every single variable that is major, like temperature, um, tire depth, uh, looking at the rubber compound, like looking at every single variable. If you're waiting for that sensor data, you'll never get to building real prediction models. And, and this is the technique that, that I'm explaining that software tech companies like Google's and the, these organizations use when they develop this stuff. Even NVIDIA, it's what is the simplest path to creating value um, and what is the value prop So you got to work backwards yeah. and that's very key. And I think it's a different mindset than what, people normally are used to
1: and maybe I'm misinterpreting this but if, if I try, try to put this in like very simple crude terms it's, it's basically yeah maybe we're not going to be hundred percent accurate but if we can be 90 percent accurate in our our models that's providing a lot more value than sitting here spinning our wheels and you basically just reacting like like we have been in in the past is that yeah. r- roughly part of the, the value proposition
2: yeah yeah and then you you mitigate the false, Positive. So, like, let's say that ten percent that people worry about and people listening probably are going to be concerned about the ten percent you mitigate by saying, okay, like I know this vehicle is going in for an oil change or it's going in for some service already, or it's coming back to its fleet hub, and so tell someone early enough in the cycle to go check the brakes or check the tire right now because it looks like there's excessive wear, and tell them early enough in the cycle, and so then even when it's those ten percent cases where it might not be correct, it doesn't matter because you didn't waste time. You did not cost them more money. They were already going to do something on the vehicle. You just told yeah. them to spend five minutes. And so fitting into workflow can change and help you mitigate false positives. And, and that's a key piece of um, how to think about this stuff as well.
1: Yeah, it, it seems like your background, uh, spending time in dealerships and understanding kind of how this uh, repair process and how those shops work. I have to imagine is a critical part in actually being able to put together a solution that is feasible in the real world and that actually answers some of the concerns that people have who are operating these shops
2: yeah, yeah, and just being practical about what what really goes on in on the on the floor versus what you think of as an engineer when you develop stuff
1: so what's your uh and we we can jump to the other use case after this, but i just just curious what what's your what's your best sales pitch look like then when you're talking to a a fleet operator so I imagine talking about ROI, you're talking about uptime, What what are the the key buttons that you're pushing to try to showcase the value that pit stops bring?
2: Yeah, yeah. So it's really, it's taking this large data that you're already capturing off your vehicle around telematics and service, and it's finding uh, the, the important insights that allow you to reduce downtime or reduce up, yeah, reduce downtime, increase uptime by 48 hours per vehicle per year. And so that for most fleets, it equates to about two thousand dollars in savings per vehicle, and so it's kind of a no-brainer because it's a pure software solution that enables them to go and do that.
1: Patrick, gotcha. yeah, make makes make sense. Definitely a strong strong case. Uh, so, so then talking about this other kind of the, the killer use case you're talking about, so so feeding, working with suppliers and OEMs, and trying to feed data in and, and allow them to to optimize or improve their their um, development implementation of, of smart components. Uh, this one's a little tougher for me to conceptualize so so can we we dig in a a bit and talk about what what are you what are we actually doing here and kind of what what information are you collecting pick pick an example or a use case or, or whatever and i think it'd be interesting to explore what this actually looks like in practice
2: sure so let's say um we have a tire sensor like a tpms sensor it's mostly measuring pressure and sometimes temperature uh and then feeding that to the cloud so if if you are a supplier of one of these solutions you put that and sell it to an oem and it goes in and it alerts you when the pressure is below some threshold but it's but let's say the temperature just changed outside uh, because it's getting colder and so but then but then it bounced right back after like two days and so did you really need to fill up the air because once the temperature stabilized again you know so it's like how intelligent is that information just raw threshold alerts is not really putting into context what really needs to happen. And so there's things around just TPMS where you can say, okay, if there's a mismatch in pressure between two tires on the same axle uh, of greater than five to 10 PSI, we know that the load on on one of the tires will be in excess of a thousand pounds. And so if there's an extensive period of trips where the vehicle is driving in that fashion, then you know, like, okay, there's going to be excessive wear. And so someone needs to do something about this now. And so the impact is not just like the tire pressure hits some threshold, but it's rather, this is literally going to create excessive tire wear on this specific tire on the vehicle. And and I think that's the that's an example where now it's an intelligent tire, not just a raw tire sensor throwing off alerts. That sometimes... Uh, m- miss the context and what's actually happening and then yeah.
1: you- definitely a uh, a timely example you choose here too so it's, a, it's right that m- mid-december right now we're recording this and i'm in the detroit area that you're in well, canada so uh, I, I have to imagine we're we're in a warm spell but we just had a cold one everyone's car as you're driving you get the tire <laughs> the tire the signals on you you go fill up your tires and then you realize yeah now it's going to be 45 degrees out today fahrenheit and uh mm-hmm that's yeah, not as big of an issue as it was last week when it was 20 degrees out but but, th- but that is interesting I, I think as you talk about though on the the fleet side the the impact's a lot bigger when you have significant yeah. loads that you have and then all of a sudden the the physics of the the truck going down looks different going down the road looks different because of...
2: exactly and so the, who the impact fuel consumption and these types of things become a big deal for the fleets
1: so who are you in, in that example the, the tire monitor uh, Who then is is Pitstop working with as your customer?
2: Yeah. So in in that example, we have a public relationship with a company called Sensata Technologies. They're a big TPMS manufacturer Mm -hmm. but make other sensors for vehicles. So they're also an investor in in, in Pitstop. So there's organizations like that that we work with in order to deploy these solutions. We work with some of the largest transmission manufacturers, um, tire manufacturers, as well as uh, various engine components. Uh, as well. and in in the electric vehicle space, we've been working with a number of these EV manufacturers around battery degradation, thermal degradation, so thermal management issues that appear, um, understanding tire wear in those environments. So there's a lot of uh, different areas that we're able to deploy these advanced analytics to help you know take uh, the sensor data to the next level.
1: Yeah, and I think this this is interesting and in the example you chose is is, is fitting too in that. I think in a lot of people's minds when they talk about uh, connected vehicle technology and data analytics, like you instantly go to autonomous vehicles, automated vehicles, and you, you start thinking about, you know, uh, interpreting camera, radar, LiDAR data, making sense of it and having v- different, I mean, we're talking about tires here, right? It's, it's, it, it sounds, doesn't sound quite as exciting, but there's, there's room for tremendous, I think, improvements from this type of data. As you mentioned, tire brakes, different, different kind of, components that need to be replaced over time which aren't as sexy necessarily as the full autonomous vehicle that we're talking about but definitely come into play here
2: yeah yeah exactly i think the that end game is really exciting because it's like as the vehicle is driving itself it should also know when to service itself and mm-hmm. it should be very intelligent not just on driving but all the other systems that are are going up but there's a value prop with this predictive analytics, even now with today's fleets, with or without the driver. And so by the time we get to full autonomy at scale, I think this solution will be very mature as well, and it'll just work hand in hand.
1: So we've been talking primarily, as you mentioned, kind of the, the middle mile or last mile type logistics, a lot of medium heavy duty on-road type applications. Um, obviously you could extrapolate this, I think in a lot of places, so, so throughout all on-road applications, but I could also imagine a lot of the stuff that you're talking about being relevant for agricultural construction equipment, maybe even aircrafts, right, especially as we're talking about, um, so if you've been working with a company on electrified propulsion system development for an aircraft and battery thermal propagation becomes an even bigger problem and successful Mm -hmm. management of that stuff um, becomes even more important when you're up in the air as you are when when you're on the ground in a vehicle, so Suffice to say, I I think there's a lot of places that you guys could theoretically go. Um, How are you thinking about prioritizing and figuring out kind of what's next and what to work on?
2: Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. I think we've really focused on production vehicle data sets. There's a certain resolution in these data sets, a certain, um, like we talked about cleanliness that you got to work through. And we've kind of built automation for those systems end to end. And so we believe we can just focus on scaling data volume in that environment with vehicles. So working with fleets, and getting to as many commercial fleets as possible with our solution, delivering that value directly, and then building, enabling some of these models to deploy on uh, OEM connected vehicle uh, stack from day one. So, you know, there's a smart tire sensor that comes with the vehicle from, from day one where there's an algorithm running in the cloud that's giving these kind of predictive insights and so I think th- those are the two areas that we really want to just continue to focus in and, and deliver value on
1: and is the the business model then primarily like a subscription basis, um, or how does that work?
2: Yeah, yeah we, we do a per vehicle per month as we work with these fleets, and <clears throat> that's largely how we've been growing and scaling our platform as we work with suppliers and OEMs, there's a lot, a little bit more of a platform license, and uh, it scales with the amount of data points that comes onto the system. Mm-hmm.
1: Got you. yeah it makes makes a lot of sense so i i think uh w- would be interested to, to to change a little bit and talk so i you, you have some some interesting stuff on pitstop's blog that you you guys have uh written and i think you personally have written some of this stuff and uh one of the ones in particular that i think got caught my attention is kind of the some of the uh predictions that that you, you put on paper about thinking about the, the industry and i'd like to, to kind of dive, dive in and get your thoughts on some of this stuff so one of it is kind of the electrification trend and thinking about what what the future looks like, right? And, and what degree of electrification is going to be the right fit? Is it that it's going to suddenly be 100% better electric vehicles in all applications? Or is there some other optimal solution that we're going to get to? What, what are your thoughts on that space?
2: Yeah, no, that's a good question. I th- I think I know everyone's ramping up a pure battery electric vehicle production facilities and... And pushing that agenda i know that there's just like raw materials on battery manufacturing and the distribution it takes time and then even if 100 of these uh vehicles become battery electric is the charging infrastructure really ready for for that and the grid and so there's a lot of things and these are in my opinion decade type of um transitions it's not like within six months you can change things like we do with our smartphones and electronic chips so I think because of that, there'll be a gradual change to a, eventually a pure battery electric future, but because it's also decades at a time, who knows how things will unfold and if um, the consensus is that, you know, certain very uh, situation around hybrid or fuel cell actually makes sense or there's some different arrangement that, that, that we should be thinking about or working with. And so I think there'll be a pretty even mix of, many solution types by 2030 on the road and of course battery electric will be one of the fastest growing but I really have a strong feeling there's going to be a few options out there um, as people are trying to build infrastructure and you know just get vehicles on the road right now we have a huge supply chain shortages and things like that so it's going to take time
1: yeah, and I think uh, I I tend to to share a similar opinion. If I can put it, one of my recurring guests on the podcast, uh, Kelly Senecal, puts it as the future is eclectic, which I think is a uh, is a clever and, and fairly accurate. Um, and, and I think one of the things that you you talk about, you know, there is a lot of uncertainty in the space, and kind of the prevailing wisdom when there are situations with a lot of variables and that could go multiple ways is you, you have to you have to give yourself the ability to course correct over time as new data comes out. And as we learn more about what it looks like to ramp up the supply chain and the infrastructure. And so if we do uh, pick a path and go too far down that path and then realize it's not the right path and it's a dead end, then we're, we're going to be in for a rough time. Um, what well, one thing in particular, though, I think that's interesting about your perspective? So I think often overlooked um, as we're talking about electrified vehicles is the, the maintenance aspect. And so, so I have uh, a friend at one of the big OEMs who may or may or not have had a, a fairly large recall recently. And he's just focused oh. on maintenance and repair and, and that type of stuff. And the the learning curve for dealers and what it looks like to uh, understand how to and when, and what, what all the maintenance looks like for battery packs for these, these large battery packs is uh, not, not trivial by any means. How, how do you think about that? I mean, especially as we're talking about some of the types of fleets that you're working with, uh, how do yeah. you envision that going as uh, they're changing and trying to understand, especially the predictive aspects?
2: Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I think I think the word maintenance typically g- makes people think of a gas engine and like, yeah, at least for me, it makes me think of, you know, my dad's shop and- so yeah, that Oil comes- change or
1: whatever. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it comes with like a-, a bunch of visuals. So I think the word maintenance is for that reason, for the way it's entrenched in our mind is not the right word anymore. It's got to be about, like, how do we ensure vehicles are up as long as possible? So downtime, like really think about downtime. And there's these new vehicles we're putting on the road. We don't have much history with them. We don't have 100 years of history. So what can you do? All you can do is monitor real-time data streams and make decisions in an agile fashion. And that's what like going back to my experience with NVIDIA, that's what these tech companies do. When they deploy solutions in the hands of consumers through the laptops that we use and the phones that we use, data is being pushed back to each supplier and they're making decisions on how to improve the product so that the, the those products are up for as long as they need to be, at least the duration of the life cycle. And that's the end-to-end cycle that's missing, in my opinion, in, in this industry and that's going to have to change. And it's what, you know, like it or not, that the Silicon Valley OEM uh, with with Tesla and some of the new players, that's the threat that I think the uh, kind of external investor market gets excited by and why I think these companies have, in some cases, excessive valuations, but it's because of that ability for them to start from ground zero and build this into the culture Mm end-to-end, like data flowing back and then using it to make better decisions, whereas changing an old culture of like 10, 50,000 employees is very, very difficult. And so that's how I think about it. And I don't know. And so I think that's what maintenance becomes then in that future. Even though I don't like the word maintenance, it's about like create as much uptime as possible. These vehicles need to be efficient. They need to be running. Uh, They can't be wasting time for whoever's using it, whether it's an autonomous fleet, uh, regular uh, logistics fleet um, or even down to the consumer and yeah. that's how you need to look at
1: it yeah and then I mean t- Tesla gets a lot of slack for, for various reasons of going going quick um, and kind of what what it means for their customer base but I think there's there's kind of no question that on the over the air update side so the ability right to actually make changes based on the data that they're collecting in real time and Change the calibration for something, make make software changes of various types. They've uh, they've really changed the game there, and I think that's a lot of what you're talking about here is the importance that this this loop kind of throughout the the transportation ecosystem is going to play a critical role in the future.
2: Exactly. Yeah, and and the fear has to be limited. Like the the, the if we're scared that pushing an update is going to cause some other issues, and you have that mindset, it's there's a risk of not pushing updates, which leads to these multi-billion dollar recalls like you referred to so you gotta you gotta you gotta use the new technology because that's the only way to to get better and you're not going to get it perfect so there's going to be risk and mistakes you can't fully uh, mitigate risk uh it's technology but you gotta try and you gotta take some risk here
1: yeah Uh, are there any others so we talked We've talked about a, a few things where this, uh, all the data that the, the vehicles are collecting and, and how this could potentially be used. Is there anything anything glaring that, that we're kind of missing or that uh, in your mind stands out as kind of opportunities that uh, whether it's in, in a couple of years, five, ten years on the road or whatever, that um, the, the world's going to look different and connected data and our AI is going to make a huge impact in, in this sector?
2: So I think there's two things. I think um, one is historically in automotive sports cars are what enabled new technologies to like get proven out mm-hmm. such like power windows and a number of things. And, and I think the next generation, especially these digital AI products, is going to be on fleets because as you prove value within, let's say, a logistics fleet of a thousand vehicles, now you understand how to create more uptime there. Those are types of insights, and it's a good stepping stone that an OEM can then benefit from. So, okay, it works on a thousand vehicles, then it works on a hundred thousand different fleets. Now, an OEM that's producing five million vehicles a year can actually look at that as a good sample set of hey, can we de- deliver that into our network and, and increase uptime for our customers by a significant amount? And so, I think that becomes very interesting. And that's what's going to allow some of these AI products to proliferate uh, and grow, because you got to prove it on enough vehicle volume um, in a network of fleets in order for it to be valid at kind of like global scale. Hey, why do
1: you think, uh, just real quick, digging why so fleets? Why do you think they're they're the the right option?
2: Uh, <clears throat> because they're a business focused on using those assets as effectively, efficiently as possible. Yes. Yeah. And so, and I think it's everybody's mind that is important when you're a consumer, you don't count, you don't think about it like that. Cause you're a vehicle population of one. And when you have that recall and your vehicle's out for three or four weeks, like that's kind of, it's a small thing, but it adds to why I think consumers don't trust dealers and they don't trust traditional OEMs because they're not looking out for their best interests. And it's because in my opinion, they're not using the data sets and trying to drive efficiency um, because the data is there. And, and that's my reason or thinking is if a fleet runs their business efficiently by using these digital services and it actually works, then everyone should benefit from it and we should use that to democratize those solutions to everybody. Yep. And that's that's what I think, but yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah, it make, makes a lot of sense. And they're also, they're making... Much more rational decisions right, about uh, total cost of ownership and, and ROI, yeah. and have the ability it's to. More, uh, it's,
2: yeah, it's more mathematical for them. It's not an emotional uh, purchase or right. They're running a business, so it's easier to quantify the value.
1: Yeah, sure. So I, I'm sorry I, I cut you off. Though you were you were going to talk about the the, the second thing. I, hopefully, I didn't uh, mess up your your line oh, of no, Thinking
2: not at all. All I was going to say is that then. Like various applications, whether it's predictive analytics with with this maintenance focus, if it's optimizing routes as efficiently as possible, whether it's for safety you want to optimize for, or it's for time efficiency. um, If it's like smart city and how the vehicle is interacting with other components in the city, like that layer of AI applications to me is what will proliferate and... So those will be like the kind of Facebook and Googles of the the internet we just experienced. And I think it's going to be these AI apps that take these data sets and make decisions that allow you to run your day-to-day more efficiently. That's my opinion and perspective, but yeah, that's what I'm excited by. And I think it's going to come in the next five to 10 years.
1: Yeah. And then that type of stuff definitely is going to have a significant impact, whether However, you're moving around whether it's a private use vehicle that I'm driving, whether I'm in a rideshare type application, or I'm taking public transit or whatever. That that type of data is what I need, right, to to have a, a more hopefully fulfilling fun fun or whatever experience wherever I'm going.
2: Yep, exactly.
1: So a little bit of a left turn here, but a question I like to ask all my guests is uh about books that uh, that have had an impact on them. So so is there anything that you've read, and it could be one. One book or more um could be personal could be professional anything in particular that has had a significant impact on you that you you'd want to highlight
2: yeah there's this uh, book from a venture capitalist called uh the hard thing about hard things hmm. and um i think that was a very profound book just you know like digging into what's the core of the problem you're trying to solve whether you're running a business or whatever you're doing and like getting to the point and communicating directly with your peers and uh, trying to solve hard things that are very uncertain. And I, I think that book was um, quite great. And then more recently I've been reading the uh, Bill Gates climate change book and right. just uh, it's insightful to understand what are truly the largest impacts to climate change. And it's not exactly buying an electric vehicle that solves the problem. Uh, so <clears throat> just, just having that perspective, I think is useful as well.
1: Yeah. Yeah. For, for sure. I, I certainly agree. And I, I'd be, I'd be curious to ask a follow-up question on the, uh, in this idea of kind of hard things and entrepreneurship. So how, be curious to get your thoughts on how you handle uh, situations in which, uh, things aren't necessarily go, going your way. So, and this is p- partly, partly self-serving question. So right. As, as I've been put in more of a, a leadership position at FEV, do you, you, you find more and more that, uh, you, you tend to be, you know, putting out fires, things come to your table and, uh, when they're needed to be problem needed to be solved and like things aren't going as, uh, as well as they could be. And I don't know, sometimes, right. It just, it just seems like uh, nothing's going your way and, and you kind of go get in a, a dark spiral, which I have to imagine you re- relate to and have had these situations. So what, when that happens, when, uh when you get hit in the face a little bit, what how do you try to uh, respond in those situations?
2: <laughs> yeah, it's a good question. I think it, it, it depends on everybody and how, Kind of you handle stress and things of that nature. I, for me, it's more about thinking about the root cause and problem and what the solution is and trying to get out in front of some of these things as much as possible. But there's this like Mike Tyson quote, and it says something like everybody has a plan until you get punched in the f- face. And so I think some of it is just how you react naturally and working on your own reaction um, and, the way you manage stress and, and your emotions, emotional response to things, uh, is, is very important uh, overall. So, yeah. You, you a specific. Kind of,
1: go ahead.
2: Oh yeah, yeah. So, so let let's say it's, uh, and this has happened in our company multiple times, where you know in a few months the company might might go bankrupt, and unless you raise capital or um, something significant happens, you're kind of screwed. And so either you can like really freak out and yell at everybody that worked on your team and blame it on the world um, which there's times where that probably happens or you can realize like hey what are the things I can control right now I can move this needle and, and let's push that as much as possible and, and trying to come down to what is it that you can actually do that's effective and productive um, and just focusing on those things because that's the only thing you can really do to be honest uh, in, in those moments so that's the way I think about it. And yeah, I'm always trying to get better as well and learn from others on how, how they handle these situations.
1: Do you have any specific uh, practices or anything that you like to go to when you're, I guess, preparing yourself for kind of maintaining this, uh, this emotional stability or when things go awry?
2: Yeah, it's a good point. I I think I I like to walk a lot, go on long walks and, you know, think through it and talk out loud with, uh, peers on, on like a walk. I think that helps me a lot personally. Um, but also maybe reading something that's different and then coming back to the situation. So your mind is like completely diverted in a different direction. And then when you come back, you have a slightly different lens for clarity. Those are two things that really help me.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate that. And, I think I agree with everything you said. And I mean, I, there, there's a the philosophy standpoint, right. Of, of kind of understanding what's going on and understanding yourself and getting into the, the ability to uh, kind of re- reflect on your own emotions and understand stuff as it comes up. But even with all that being said, I mean, I have to imagine when stuff comes up where you get to a, a, a dead end where you might go bankrupt or whatever, it's uh, not, it, it's easier said than done to kind of maintain that, that level headedness.
2: Oh yeah, for sure. <laughs>
1: Anything else that's really uh, stood out to you? So, so as you've been building this this company over the last few years, anything else that's kind of surprised you or has uh, stood out along the jersey or along the journey is maybe something that you didn't expect.
2: Um, I guess that like the the market that you're in, like the macro, actually matters a lot. And so, like in in my case, there's been a lot of tailwinds that been very helpful for pit stop and has accelerated things, Mm -hmm. but it's not stuff initially predicted for, or necessarily like planned for, but it kind of just worked out. And I think, yeah, those, that to me was, it's obvious, but sometimes you don't know how laser focused the world can get on a topic such as electric vehicles. I think in the past year, it's probably the the hottest sector in the world. And, um, it's interesting because automotive stuff historically has not been that hot. So it's quite exciting to kind of see that change and shift and excitement for the industry and the space and reinventing it. And at a time where, you know, that's what trying to do in my own way is reinvent the way we're doing certain things in this industry around the data sets. Uh, so, so it's like timely from that perspective. So I think that kind of is a surprise and, um, something that I've learned personally on a personal front.
1: Yeah. I mean the, the, the growth of importance on e-commerce and, uh, Logistics challenges and everything, right? That's exploded since the the pandemic started, which I have to imagine is a pretty strong tailwind for you. Is this uh, were you, were you already kind of in position and planned on this market, and then that kind of just rose you over the where, where you needed to go, or was that did you have to make any kind of conscious decisions to dive in as this kind of wave of uh, e-commerce and logistics growth uh, took came in?
2: Yeah, it's a good question. I, I think it's a little bit of both. You know that. Hey, uh, if you're going to work with vehicles, there's a few different sectors that you can tackle or right? OEM direct or you go through s- suppliers to an OEM or you work with, you know, vehicles, consumers through dealers or, or fleets. Like you start to break it out and you realize. So I think kind of our pulse was always on what's happening and just been ready to ride the whatever wave seemed to make sense. So I think we kind of were doing that naturally. But uh, yeah, I think in the future, I'd be more intentional about some of that stuff.
1: Yeah, cool. Well, those are just other things. Been been fun. I think uh, really interesting what you guys are doing. Cool hearing how you're thinking about uh, yeah, making sense of this data and having meaningful solutions that you're providing to, to fleet owners and back to to, to component suppliers and, and all of that. And also talking about kind of how how you're growing the company. Um, yeah, I, I guess I would just say maybe open floor. Anything anything we missed or any kind of parting thoughts that you want someone listening to this to to come away with.
2: Um, that, hey, if you're looking to deploy predictive analytics and drive uptime for your fleet to, to work with PitStop, we also will be active at various conferences next year. There's one in Orlando, Florida uh, called the TMC Conference for heavy-duty trucking uh, that we'll be uh, present at. And so love to talk to anybody that is focusing on this space and you know wants to just talk about what they can do with their data sets. Cool. Well, thanks you really appreciate it appreciate it as well thanks brandon
0: the future mobility podcast is brought to you by fev for more than 40 years fev has been a global leader in the development of mobility solutions for the transportation industry with a team of experts passionate about innovation through the design development integration and validation of turnkey vehicle and propulsion system technologies fev is your partner for the development of future mobility solutions i'm your host brandon bartnick if you want to learn more or get in contact share feedback or questions, the best place to find me
2: is on LinkedIn at Brandon Bartnick. Thanks for listening.